From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, the producer of this podcast and your host for this episode. A listener's note before we get started. This conversation was recorded prior to the shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, that killed eight people and targeted Asian Americans. So while we talk about Asian American discrimination, this conversation does not address the recent tragedy. This week, we're rounding out our Women's History Month series with writer and artist Chanel Miller. Chanel jumped into the spotlight back in 2015, first through a pseudonym, Emily Doe, known in the context of the crime committed against her, a sexual assault that took place on Stanford University's campus, perpetrated by then-student Brock Turner. The victim impact statement she wrote and delivered at the trial went viral, receiving over 11 million views on BuzzFeed. Chanel's words helped set off the Me Too movement, but her name was nowhere to be found. In 2019, Chanel stepped out from under anonymity and into authoring her own story. She published the New York Times bestselling memoir, Know My Name. She is now known as a leading voice for survivors of sexual violence and as an emerging artist, currently debuting work in San Francisco's Asian Art Museum. Behind every social issue are survivors, often of discrimination, of atrocity, and of violence. Everyone has had an experience that has made them feel nameless and faceless. But Chanel knows that in owning our own power, we can be both powerful for ourselves and those around us. She joins us today to share more about her own journey. Chanel, welcome to At Liberty. Hello, Kendall. Thank you so much for having me. It's so, so good to have you. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you first rose to prominence under a name that was not your own. Um, In court documents, you were known as Emily Doe. And like I said, your victim impact statement went viral when BuzzFeed published it. And so, so, so many people connected with the words that you had written about your very specific circumstance. In many ways, you acted as a symbol to all of us. Before we knew you as Chanel Miller, we knew you as representing millions of survivors. What did that feel like to you, to know that all of these people were connecting with your words, but didn't know you as a person? It was extremely revelatory because preceding the eruption of the statement was the loneliest year of my 20-something years on earth. And so to overnight have that loneliness juxtaposed by global support was really surreal. And it actually took a long time for me to absorb. I almost think of it as like a water tower of love and support, like pink water or something. And then every day I can drink maybe two cups of it, (laughs) but I couldn't consume it all at once. But that's okay because the letters I received from people sustained me over the three years it took to write the book. I think it's important to note that overnight, it's not like I reframed myself and realized that I was a courageous person, a triumphant survivor. I still wasn't even close to an ending where I felt at peace in my life and that it would still take a lot of 
encouragement to get me to a place where I felt more grounded in myself, confident enough to put a face to my name. So I think not only was the original expression of support important, it was the ongoing showing of support in the fact that when I did emerge, people were still there for me, even though over four years had passed and the story was no longer quote unquote relevant in the news cycle. I was still relevant. I'm still alive in here and people showed up in that. That has been really important for me and I think other survivors to see. Did you have any concerns that after so much time had passed, you would still have that kind of same support? Was that something that went through your head? It was an idea introduced to me by some of the reporters who had inquired about having interviews early on, applying that pressure to come forward and saying, you need to do this before the news cycle ages out. But I knew that I couldn't. I knew that internally I wasn't ready and that I won't be good for anyone unless I feel okay with what's happening. And so really the past few years has been practice in listening to myself and really following that internal compass to guide me when to make these decisions because they're no one else's decision to make. Well, I'm really glad that you listened to yourself and not those sharky reporters. That's not That's not good. Yeah. On behalf of my former profession, I apologize. So in 2019, you publish Know My Name. The title, I think, says it all. Suddenly, everyone really does know your name now. And we just this month spoke with Delaware State Senator Sarah McBride. And we were talking about a different topic. We were talking about appropriate ID documents for trans and non-binary folks and the power that names carry. And I want to share something that she said with you and get your reaction. So she said, names and pronouns are the first way we affirm a person's humanity. What are oftentimes the first steps of everyone from bullies to governments that seek to oppress? It's to remove people's names. And I guess I wondered if that resonated with you, the power our names hold. What were your considerations about introducing yourself by name? And what did stepping into your name feel like to you? Yeah, I think for a long time, my name was all I felt like I had. It was the only thing legally that I was allowed to keep. Everything else was pretty much up for grabs. So I was allowed to be interrogated. I could be asked about my weight in my personal relationships, past relationships, relationship to alcohol, naked photos from the hospital were put up on screens. So everything was being taken. But the one thing I was allowed to keep were the six letters of my first name. And so that felt extremely sacred to me. My name was used in the courtroom, and I sort of had to trust that people wouldn't walk out with it. But I really didn't like the feeling sometimes of hearing people like my assailant saying my name. I had this instinct to almost scrape it out of his mouth and hold it and, you know, keep it close to me. So I was aware, too, that it's a gift, you know, to give you my name is a signal that I trust you and 
that I'm giving you my story, that I'm willing to share something that's been very intimate and personal to me. So I needed to protect it. And it took me a long time to be proud of what I had done. I think it takes a long time to assign, like pride doesn't really seem to exist much in the realm of assault, but I think it totally belongs there. Like so much of what you go through is so excruciatingly hard and just getting through it is an unbelievable feat, no matter how you come out on the other side. So after a while, I learned to see that what I had done was admirable. And even if it looked like tears everywhere or looked like a quavering voice, you know, it was still powerful. And so I was ready to surface and deliver my name. It's interesting that you use the term pride and say that survivors should be proud of themselves because I think oftentimes the word associated with assault is actually shame, which is very much the opposite. You frequently said that I don't think most survivors want to live in hiding. We do because silence means safety. At what point did your anonymity shift from being a safety precaution to maybe a form of silencing? And now that you're not silent anymore, do you still feel this way? Do you still feel that your silence was also your safety? Yeah, I think, like you said in the beginning, it was a protection. And in the end, it was more inhibiting. And it actually was denying a lot of who I had become. And I think in coming forward, I'm not only coming forward to tell you that I have been assaulted, I'm coming forward to have the public acknowledge who I am and how far I've come. And I think, again, that piece is really essential. That's not just a sad story, but it's a celebration to just recognize the fact that I'm still here. And that even though so much damage had been done and I've changed in irreversible ways, some of those changes are positive in that the public has taught me how valuable I am. And I know not to ever tolerate any kind of abuse, verbal or physical, moving forward. I before was never that opinionated. Now I will (laughs) speak exactly what's on my mind if it is for what is right. I want to be able to acknowledge how wonderful it is to be able to grow into yourself and your voice, which has been possible only because of the constant support. At the ACLU, we're always working with social issues and Typically, we're representing clients who've experienced, you know, marginalization, discrimination. And in the advocacy space, we have to acknowledge that obviously speaking and writing about the ways in which someone has been victimized or abused is often deeply traumatic. How have you protected yourself in this experience of, okay, now you are speaking up, now you are stepping into your story in a very, very public way? How have you protected yourself in this experience of sharing? I think it's important to know 
that survivors, you can always draw lines. At first in court, I thought the rule was give, give, give. Like I will give you anything you ask of me in order to get this case resolved. When I step back out into the real world, I realize that we're allowed to have boundaries. If I'm in an interview and I'm made to feel uncomfortable, I have every right to exit the interview or to assert my needs and expect that other people will meet them. You know, our boundaries aren't meant to be crossed again and again in order to extract our stories. And I think it's society's job to create a more nourishing environment in order to properly receive these stories, not for us to be gutting ourselves in order to be heard. Yeah, absolutely. So you're also an artist in addition to being a writer. The really exciting thing about when you joined social media publicly to share your book with us, you also began to share your art with all of us. And then the head of the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco saw your work on social media and invited you to create work for a wall in the museum that is exposed to the street by windows. And I read somewhere that it's a half block of the city, which is a pretty big space. So what was it like to be given that kind of space? And how did you decide to use it? What was the process like for you? Yeah, and talking about first my drawings, I think when I do interviews, I feel a need to come off as semi-coherent and (laughs) put together. But there's still so much that I don't know, still so much that I'm processing, I'm growing up. And so my diary comics are a way of continuing to do that. And again, you know, I'm always out here advising people to be gentle to themselves. And I acknowledge that that takes so much patience and practice and that it's something I need to remind myself time and time again. So I'll create these diary comics to sort of slow down, pay attention to what I'm thinking and feeling, really examine that. And then I also think drawing is powerful because for me, it exists as a counterweight and it allows me to work harder or at least work in subjects that can be more turbulent. Like I can read a lot about sexual violence knowing that at the end of the day, I can wind down by drawing a family of seagulls, (laughs) you know, to calm down. As long as I keep those in balance, then I can continue to do the work that I do. With the museum, it's an example of something that I would have never thought to ask for myself for 75 feet of wall space, but that someone else presented to me to show me the space I deserve to take up in the world. And I think I do have a level of confidence that I'm constantly nourishing, but I also need these spaces to grow into. I think it's a really beautiful thing we can do, especially for survivors to continue their stories, right? And when she brought me in for the project, she said I could do whatever I wanted. It didn't have to be like, hey, can you be the glowing voice that has come out of this case? She just said, here's your wall go home and draw, come back with some drawings and we'll talk it through. And I think another valuable thing to note is that if you look at the piece, the lines are actually quite simple. And in the beginning, I had started with really intricate drawings. I thought, 
I want to show everyone how good I am at drawing. You know, this is my only opportunity. But over time, I thought I'm done proving things to people. Like, I just want to do things because I enjoy them and look at things because I love them, not because I feel a need to always be showing you that I'm worth something. So the simplicity of the drawings, they're these sort of sweet looking characters, is a testament to the fact that I let go of trying to earn worth from external sources and really just show what I want to show. And that does seem like a message that you are also conveying to your audience, both in that piece of work itself, but also, as you mentioned and explained, all of the Instagram posts, you're often using creatures, as you mentioned. You like drawing different animals and metaphors also uh, to deliver these really powerful messages about healing, about dealing with uncertainty, and also about activism. And you did say that they start in your diary, but do you first come up with what you want to say and then you come up with the art to share or illustrate it? Or is it vice versa? So what I think is that we put so much emphasis on like capital T traumatic events. Those are the big, painful, headline worthy things when I'm much more interested in how trauma sort of trickles into our lives and how it lives in us every day through our behavioral patterns and the way we observe things and the way we carry ourselves. And so I like paying attention to what might be considered mundane. We're all going through so much all the time and we feel like we can only justify feeling low if we've had some significant, concrete, bad thing happen when really just like making it through every day is its own challenge. You know, we're living with so many experiences in our past that we may not have processed, but that to me is really interesting. So I start with small moments and look for the deeper layers in those moments. That seems really reflective of what I've seen. And also, my next question, actually, is about your art and how you use it to share the experience of being Asian in America. The pandemic, obviously, has brought us many unwanted things. And one of the worst things it's brought is a surge of anti-Asian hate crimes. And I know that you've addressed this in your art, both in directly calling out the violence, talking about things like the model minority myth, but also to your point, sharing these more quotidian experiences that you've had with your family, namely your grandfather. I find your approach to be both informative, but also very familiar and I wonder if sharing experiences about your grandfather is very intentional and the kinds of things that you share about your relationship or your identity and how you think about that in your kind of bigger activism. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that comic was about a time I was shopping with my gonggong, my grandfather, and whenever we're getting clothes, buying groceries, he always has this Chinese instrumental music like blaring out of his phone in his pocket. And I've come to think of it as his soundtrack. And we were in this store and this white woman, you know, 
just turned to us and she said, I hate that music. And he immediately apologized and was sort of fumbling to turn it off. And that hurt me because he was so quick to absorb her shaming and her dismissal and her rudeness. And I was so angry. I kind of stepped away from the situation for a little bit. Then I walked back to her later and just said, you know, another way you could have said that is to just politely ask him to turn it off. And she didn't say anything. You know, I think because she knew and I really don't have to insult her. I just have to mirror her behavior back to herself. And that's often all it requires, right? So that was so significant to me because I think racism can be so subtle and so masked and again, so embedded in everyday life. And that exchange is not going to be a full story. It's not going to be published anywhere. It's not going to be a hate crime. You know, it's it's just something that passes so quickly, but I wanted to document it and preserve it and sort of highlight just how boldly she insulted his music and also almost like how she dimmed his spirit a bit. Like, this is not your space to be expressing yourself and I don't want to hear it. And these instances accumulate over time, especially for Asian Americans. I think it's always just enough that we say, okay, I can live with this. You know, we're like, okay, I'm not going to start a fight. But over time, it's so painful. It's painful for us. It's painful to see it happening to our family members who maybe don't have the English to stand up for themselves. And so I think we're way past that point of tolerance and With all activism, I think it starts with these little seeds of personal stories that live very close to our hearts. And then we go off and find the language and the greater oppressive structural patterns um, and the repetition of instances like this. But it first starts with paying attention to what we've experienced and taking that seriously. Yeah, I think it's been really powerful to see other Asian Americans speak up about the issue. And really important, because I think we often think about racism as a black-white issue, when it's very much bigger than that. I also have heard you speak about on your podcast with your sister, which is very good, by the way, and in other interviews that you're taking Chinese lessons in the pandemic, which is a great way to spend time. And I was wondering how those were going. Yeah, so I had heard, I was video chatting with my grandfather I had heard a voice in his apartment and I asked, who's there? (laughs) And it was this YouTube video of someone speaking English phrases, like, look at the size of her ring. And he would (laughs) repeat them. And I thought it was so sweet that he was learning, continuing to learn on his own. And I thought, why have I sort of given up? You know, I wanted to challenge myself to at least meet him more halfway and study Chinese again. So I started doing my classes. I also knew since I wouldn't be seeing him in person for a while, it was essential that I'd be able to 
communicate better verbally or to be able to write him letters. I think in person, we communicate a lot through food. He cooks me huge tablefuls of food. I sit there, consume it all, and that's love. That's how love is exchanged. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do that for an indefinite amount of time. So just like, again, leaning more into my Chinese identity, it's something that I resisted for a long time. And then I think many people do because we were so eager when we were young to assimilate and to repress anything that made us different. And now I think we are demanding that we be a part of the mainstream. Yeah. Obviously, we've talked about you using your art to vocalize the mundane, to express and call out important action for Asian Americans. But you've also used it to be an ally to other people. And I think that has actually been I've consumed all of this art as I was living throughout the pandemic, but then also going back and reflecting on it. And I specifically had remembered this one post in which you liken your experience when you were quiet and other people supported you and lifted up your voice and story to what we need to do for Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, for George Floyd, and so many other people. And it really struck me that you know, by you tapping into your own experience and your own pain, you could more presently feel what they were going through, even though it's a vastly different experience. That made me wonder, what does the value of our own unique pain have in activism? What value do you think your own unique pain has in your own activism? If you look at my story right now, I'm held up as someone who has a strong voice. Um, But if you look at my trial, the only reason I have any verdict at all is because I had two witnesses, the two Swedes testify on my behalf and are on my side. And that's how the verdict was secured. Two months after the verdict was the sentencing, which is when I read my victim impact statement. And when I, after I read that, nothing happened. Like I had no influence. And in the court system, I meant nothing. And it was only when the statement was released that millions of people poured in. Suddenly I was given a platform. I was taken seriously. But that, you have to realize that voice was not given to me within the system. It was given to me by the public. And I think about Breonna Taylor and the fact that her family was fighting for her death to be acknowledged for months before other people were aware of it and began strengthening their case. But I cannot, we cannot live in a world where it takes us sending flares up in the sky and smoke signals waiting for it to catch on somewhere and having millions on our side to maybe be heard in the criminal justice system. That is absolutely ridiculous and disturbing that we cannot rely on the system alone to hold people accountable and that we can be so easily erased if someone doesn't notice that we're missing, right? Or that something has happened. And so that terrifies me. So I think there's the initial trauma that happens 
The second trauma is the lack of acknowledgement that something has happened. And that to me is so pervasive and terrifying. It is being actively suffocated. It is having your existence denied. It is screaming and not having anyone hear you. That is a nightmare in itself. And that is the one that we actually have control over changing more quickly, right? It's something that we can attend to immediately. And so that's on all of us to do the listening. Yes, we also need to do the preventing, but listening can be done today. Most people, I think, who experience this kind of abuse or marginalization or discrimination, they don't have people marching in the streets for them. I think that's actually the rare case that we see that gets our attention. You talk a lot about the concept of imagination. In one post you wrote, I have to stretch my imagination around things, give them names and explanations so that they become less scary. When I create, I am no longer held captive in an uncontrollable environment since I am the one who is now dictating the story. And I wonder as someone, you know, you just mentioned being someone that was deeply mistreated by the justice system, both in the courtroom and also in the sentence that your perpetrator received. Can you imagine a better system if you got to use the full embodiment of your imagination? Do you have ideas of how it could be even better, things that we may or may not have thought of already? I was very lucky that the first detective I spoke to who came and met me at the hospital to get my first statement His demeanor was receptive. It gave me space to speak. He wasn't pressing. And that was essential because how the story is extracted is extremely important. And what I said in that hospital that morning would be used again and again in the courtroom. So had he come in and been dismissive, judgmental, I might have caved in on myself, not been able to speak, if the experience had been negative, I might have said on the spot, I don't want to press charges. And my story would have ended there. And so I think everyone needs to be more trained, to be trauma-informed, to be able to properly take care of these stories, to understand that if a survivor appears to be flat or not crying, it doesn't mean she's not emotional. She could be suspended in a frozen state, in a state of self-preservation, but it doesn't mean she's apathetic. Everyone needs to understand that the one thing we have to restore to the survivor is a sense of agency to give her options to know how to move forward. And so I think a lot in the criminal justice system, I raise the question, like, who is allowed to be human? On that same morning, I was expected to tell a cohesive story, I was expected to act with calmness and clarity that's always demanded of the victims. So I encourage all of us to continue to look at these cases and think about who is allowed to be afraid, who is allowed to make mistakes, who is allowed to overreact, to act impulsively without thinking things through, who is forgiven, who is allowed to feel fear, and who is constantly having to prove that they are worthy to society and who doesn't have to lift a finger because they are automatically assumed to be worthy. I think 
It's so hard as a young person when you're beginning this fight or entering activism because I think you'll be told a lot that some things are not possible or not realistic. And I came up against that a lot when I was in these conversations with Stanford University. And on one hand, I came away from these conversations feeling naive. Like, what did you expect? That they would listen to you, like this singular person coming against this huge institution? But then again, I thought it's not that naive to expect safety. It's a right. And I'm not some young person throwing a tantrum, expecting too much, having too many needs. I'm someone who is seeing what is happening and what they need to address and tend to quickly because over time it will infect them and bring them down and that they should be grateful that I'm alerting them to this. And I guess the one thing I adjusted is how much time change takes. Like I do understand now that things do take time. They don't happen overnight. And I'm willing to accept that piece, but I'm not giving up my idea of no assaults happening on campus. Like what's happening isn't normal. And the fact that we treat it like it's a natural effect of going to parties means that our culture is sick. And that we need to, like you said, imagine being taken care of if you see someone who's vulnerable. That's not unreasonable to expect. So I think imagination is necessary in that it will, it's not like the word imagination sounds floaty, but it will become reality. I think it can sound floaty and soft to people who want to belittle something like that. Something is so powerful, but I think as a tool for social change, it's actually probably the most important thing is to have an active imagination because if we don't imagine a solution, then we can't create the solution. It has to first start with with us and what we can believe and dream into existence. It's very clear that you are just getting started that this is the first of many things that we will see from you, that we will read from you. Where do you hope your career as an artist and writer leads next? I hope I just continue to try things, that the public will witness me failing at certain mediums, experimenting with different mediums. I think it would be a huge disservice to myself if I become too precious about what I put into the world next. So I just hope you always think about what you want to say first. And then secondly, you think about how you want to say it. So I'll continue to think about what I want to communicate to the world. And then that might make itself known in a children's book or film or whatever. But I will always continue learning. And I think at the end of the day, everything always comes back to cherishing your inner voice, which can so easily be trampled and erased and stricken. And 
I feel like it is my duty to build little shelters around other people's voices and give them the tools to build those shelters themselves. That is honestly beautiful. I love that. Um, Chanel, thank you so, so much for joining us. And everyone, if you'd like to hear more from Chanel, you can also check out the podcast she hosts with her sister, Tiffany, called Childhood. It's a very lovely way to spend time in the pandemic. Thank you, Kendall. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong, everyone.